1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. This statement arises out of a specific situation that the people in the church of Corinth were facing. Believers in the city on occasion, as you would expect, were invited to eat with their friends and neighbors. And those friends and neighbors, in many cases, were pagan. They had not come to know Jesus and to worship Him. And so there were situations where believers were asked to come and eat at the table of a person who was not a believer, and the entree at that table would be, in some cases, meat that had been offered to pagan gods. The Apostle Paul, in setting up this verse and explaining what comes before it, told the church that if they get in a situation like that, and the host there announces that the meat had been offered in a pagan temple, that they should abstain from eating that meat. But he also tells the people in the church that if a believer has no qualms of conscience about eating meat that, been, that had been offered to idols, if they go out into the marketplace and their conscience is clear, they can buy that same meat and they can take it home and if there's no link in their minds between pagan worship and the meat that they have purchased, that they should give thanks for it and they should eat it. He lays down a principle here that Christians are to modify their behavior for the sake of those who are weak in faith, but they shouldn't modify their scriptural beliefs. So if you have no qualms about it, it's okay to eat it alone. If question is raised out in public, about the meat, and the host or other believers that are present make a link to pagan worship, they are still worshiping in those temples, then you should refrain from eating. Paul then tells the Christians, and he tells us, that confusing non-believers or weak believers is something that doesn't bring glory to God, and that's why these people are to refrain. And he lays down that principle in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. In the verse we read, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. The principle that he lays down is this. Everything believers do, including the most mundane and routine things in life, like eating and drinking, are to be done in a way that brings glory to God. When believers are following that principle, when their actions and words and thoughts are bringing glory to God, during those times they are fulfilling the purpose for which God created men and women, boys and girls. Now, most of you here know that the primary message of the Bible is this, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's no one who can say they are without sin. And that salvation from sin we've seen in recent weeks again, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I would suggest to you that once that message has been received, and a man or woman, a child, has been transported from the kingdom of Satan into God's gracious kingdom of light, adopted into God's family, 
that the next most important principle, the most important message that they can ever get is the one that you have before you this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. The second most important message for believers is, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. I would suggest if you are here today and you're a Christian that you would serve yourself well by memorizing that very brief verse. That verse contains truth that can keep us from sin, provided we make it the test of our every thought, of our every word, of our very every act. And if you have children or you have grandchildren, you're here this morning, you should help them to memorize that verse. It will prepare them to resist the temptations that they will inevitably face in this life, and it will also provide them with a guide as they make life choices, choices that are at the core of what they will be. It will help direct them if they know this verse and they apply the test. Now, the people of God in the Old Testament were commanded to press the law, impress the law of God upon the hearts of their children. You can read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 6. They were to talk about the law of God. They were to write it down and post it at places in their home. And I think this is one of those principles of Scripture uh, that it would behoove us to follow that Deuteronomy 6 uh, command for God's Old Testament people. Now, what is the reason for which God created you? The first question of our larger catechism, one of those documents that outlines what we believe as Presbyterians, is this. What is the chief and highest end of man? What is that question asking? It's asking what is the best use that we can make of our lives? What were men and women, boys and girls, created for? What were they designed for? What can bring them the maximum satisfaction and joy and contentment in this life and the next? Pat and I spend a lot of time in a three seasons room that is at the back of our house. It has large sliding glass doors and screens. You can open the doors and look out on the backyard and we just enjoy that so much. We really spend a lot of our time there. In the summer, because of the way the sun comes up and beats on that room all day long, a room which is not air-conditioned, uh, the room can get quite warm. And it, like I said, it doesn't have uh, air conditioning. I was thinking about this. I had read the illustration somewhere, but I'm making it specific to our situation. I think I could probably bring our lawnmower into that space and pull the cord and start it. Weight down the handle and get some kind of breeze going from the blade that would be going around if I, you know, did it properly. But that is not the best use of the lawnmower. The lawnmower does very well cutting grass, but it probably would not do very well in that application. What does a good job in that application is the paddle fan that we have on the ceiling. You see, the mower would be doing something it wasn't designed for, the fan is designed to create that kind of breeze. Well, what is the chiefest and highest end of man? What is he de designed for? What can he do best at? Well, the larger catechism answers question one in this way. It says man's chief 
and highest end is to glorify God and to fully enjoy Him forever. Enjoy Him now and enjoy Him for all eternity. If this is really what God has created us for, if this is true of us, when we are not glorifying Him, we are like a lawnmower that's being used as a fan. Now, what is the glory of God? If we're going to glorify God, we need to know what the glory of God is. The word glory, when used as a noun, is an asset that is worthy of praise. Glory is something meriting the highest admiration, appreciation, or regard. Now, suppose you had a friend that was very highly intelligent. You might make this statement about that person. You might say his or her intellect is his or her crowning glory, or fall is, you know, coming quickly. Uh, you might talk to somebody that had taken a trip to New England, like maybe a lot of you have in early October. And that person who has taken the trip might come back and say to you, the glory of Vermont is the splendor of her forest in the fall. The Hebrew word that is translated in the Old Testament um, as glory speaks about the weight of somebody the heaviness of somebody. So, somebody that is a glorious person has weight and depth, and they are heavy. In the New Testament, the Greek word for glory comes from a verb that means to think of, to think highly of. It's often used in the context of a person thinking highly of themselves, but it could also be somebody else who is thinking very highly of them. It has to do with the opinion someone holds about himself or herself or someone else. In the Bible, both terms generally refer, as you would expect given their, their history, uh, to a person's importance. When the Bible speaks about glory, most often it speaks about the glory of God. When it speaks of the glory of God, it speaks of the very nature of God, the very essence of God. God is glory. Dr. Robert Raymond uh, was professor of systematic theology with Dr. Laird Harris at Covenant Seminary. Later, he taught at Knox Seminary um, in Florida. And I'll tell you, one of the most brilliant persons I have ever met, it was amazing to sit at a table with him and Dr. Harris. In his theology book, he wrote this, God's glory is simply the inescapable weight of the sheer intrinsic godness of God inherent in the attributes essential to Him as deity. Everything about the Lord God is glorious. That's pretty much what he was saying. In Psalm 72, 19, <clears throat> the psalmist writes this, Praise be to His glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. When, when the Scripture talks about Jesus' name or the Father's name, it's not talking about the symbols that we tie to God. It's not like Jehovah. It's not talking about that. When it talks about the name of Jesus or the name of God, it's sort of the brand, if we can get secular. It's everything 
that God stands for. It's everything that Jesus stands for. The psalmist is saying that every one of the attributes that make God to be God is of infinite weight and merits infinite admiration, infinite appreciation, and infinite praise. Now, proof, <clears throat> proof that everything about God is glorious is seen in the Bible regularly in that the Bible often substitutes glory for a specific attribute or characteristic of God, and that's what we mean when we say attributes. And glory is used, and it leaves it up to us, to the reader, to figure out what characteristic of God or attribute is being spoken of. Let me give you an example. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, what does that mean? In that situation, the word glory stands in the place of God's absolute righteousness, and that absolute infinite righteousness is one of His attributes. When you sing the hymn, Come Thou, Almighty King, the words of that hymn, Father, all glorious, come and reign over us, ancient of days, when you sing those words, you are acknowledging that everything about God is wholly glorious. Infinite glory is what God is. It is infinite glory that makes God to be God. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the writer there is telling us that the Son, the Word of God, Jesus the Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is co-equal with God the Father. And he does that by stating, God the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. The author is saying that the Son of God is fully God because from all eternity He had eternal glory. All the glory that the Father has, the Son also has. Not that it's shared, but each of them individually is a glorious God, and that eternally the Son was glorious. He had all glory. God has absolute glory. Now, think about this. If no human or angel had ever existed, if they had never acknowledged God's glory, He would still be, as we sing in the hymn, Father all-glorious. God was infinitely glorious before he created anything that was capable of praising Him. We cannot give God glory in the sense that we add anything to His glory. We can no more add to His glory than we can add to His wisdom or His power or any of His other attributes. Well then, why does the Lord tell us in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. What is He telling us to do? Let's look for a few moments at the purpose of the creation. In Revelation chapter 4, there's a scene of the throne room of God in heaven. And when you read that, it's obvious that what is there is so glorious that language is kind of breaking down. Like, it's very hard for the Spirit of God through the Apostle John to communicate what's there, what we haven't experienced yet, 
in um, the language that we know. One of the things that is clear there is there are 24 elders, uh, probably 12 representing the church in the Old Testament, the 12 tribes, 12 representing the church in the New Testament, um, the apostolic number. The elders are there worshiping God in His throne room, and this is what they say as they worship. You are worthy, O Lord, and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Now, God is worthy of that kind of worship, even if it's not linked to creation, but they're praising God for His works of creation. When those elders do that, they're not adding anything to the intrinsic, to the inherent uh, glory of God. What are they doing? They're recognizing and bowing before God and calling attention to and praising what is the very essence of God, the glory of God, that, uh, that He is of, uh, they're acknowledging that He is of infinite weight and majesty as the creator and the sustainer of everything in the universe. And that is what we mean to give glory to God. It is to look at God's glory and declare His glory through every means that we can. We don't add to God's glory. We call attention to it by our thoughts, our words, and by our deeds. Now, God really puts His glory on display in creation, the Bible tells us. In Psalm 19, 1 and following, we're reminded that the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. There is no one on earth, where, wherever there is speech, there are people who can look up into the heavens, and they can determine some things if they want to uh, about God. They can see that there's a creator of infinite knowledge and infinite wisdom and majesty and power. They can see that there's an all-glorious uh, creator God. The elders in heaven tell us that humans should be able to contemplate the creation and spontaneously worship God with their hearts and their mouths and actions. Men and women, boys and girls, were created to contemplate the glory of God and to pr proclaim it in the way creation does. In Isaiah 43, 1 through 7, there's a really comforting Scripture um, that, that um, would be good for us to, to read regularly. God talks about His people, and He says that, that their sufferings, natural disasters, things, other things that they go through in life will not last forever. He, he tells us to focus back on the deeds that He's done in the past and remember that He is always that kind of God who cares for us and who loves us. He then tells Israel not to fear their captivity, that they won't be in foreign lands forever, that He's going to draw His people from the east and from the west and the north and the south, uh, from the ends of the earth. And He says that the reason He's going to do that is because they are precious and honored in His sight and because He loves His people. Immediately following that second affirmation of His love and care for His people, God tells why He formed the Jewish people. He refers to them in verse 7 as those whom I have created for what? For my own glory. This is what 
um, what the father says. He says, I called Abram and his future descendants out from among all of the people groups on earth for the specific purpose of glorifying me. That was the purpose uh, for God calling Abraham and later the whole nation of Israel to himself. So God has created Jewish people to bring honor and glory, the nation to bring honor and glory to him. Now you might say, how does that relate to me? Because Isaiah says that God created the Jewish people for the purpose of ascribing to him glory, but I'm not Jewish. Well, God established the nation of Israel to bring glory to him because people on earth were not doing what God created them to do, and that was to bring glory to him. Sin had entered the race through Adam. It had effect, infected all humans, and it brought humans to the point where they were more interested in glorifying themselves than in glorifying God. Sin in the race turns men's focus from the glory that would naturally be given to God to glory given to themselves. Romans 1, 20 through 25 teaches this to be the case. We read there that for since the creation of the world, God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever blessed. The Apostle Paul is saying there that men and women are held accountable to the Lord for creating their own gods, gods in their own image, glorifying them, and at the end of the day, really glorifying themselves, worshiping themselves. He does this based on the truth that God has created people, all humans, not just Jewish people, for the purpose of glorifying Him. That's how He can hold them accountable. They're not living up to the divine purpose that God created them for. Paul's purpose in Romans is to show that both Jews and Gentiles are guilty of this and guilty sinners before God and deserving of His wrath. He tells us what, he tells us what the mother of all sins is here in Romans 3. He says that all have come short of the glory of God. This is what's so bad about sin. Sin robs God of the glory of that is due him. It robs him of what he created us for. When we sin, we are not acting for the glory of God. We are not showing those in our world and the unseen world of angels and demons that God is worthy of receiving glory from us in all that we do, in our thoughts, in our words, and our deeds. We're doing the exact opposite of what our text calls us to do when it says, do everything we do for the glory of God. One of the things that makes sin so incredibly sinful is that when we are sinning, we are robbing God of that which He made us for. The greatest manifestation of God's glory from our point of view 
is the provision that He has made for us to fulfill the purpose for which He created us. And we read about that provision in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Amazing Scripture. The Apostle Paul there says, for God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, the God who is present at creation and called light into being, made His light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Christ. God, by His Holy Spirit, opens the hearts of people who are not glorifying Him at all by their lives. He opens their minds, and they receive His Son, Jesus, and in Him they see the inherent glory of the triune God. It isn't just that the Holy Spirit works to give us an aha moment, and with our faculties we figure this all out, not at all. God, through His Spirit, is made known to us, revealed to us in our souls. And when we come to know God in this way, we desire to glorify Him in the way that we were created to do. It happens because of the work of Jesus. The work, the work of Christ uh, uh, that's uh, in us, that is displayed to us, that brings us the glory of God, is read about all through Scripture, but listen to it in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. Just listen to the work of God um, in salvation in the, these verses. The Apostle Paul writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us to be adopted as sons, how? Through Jesus Christ, in accordance with the pleasure of His will. And why? Why are we saved? To the praise of His glory as shown by His grace. The entire plan of salvation from God choosing you to be saved, if you are or will be, before there was a world, to the coming of the Son of God into the world as a virgin-born human, who is also God, to the sinless Christ's atoning death on the cross for the sins of the chosen ones, through His resurrection, to your being exposed to the gospel and being lovingly and sovereignly drawn to it, by the Holy Spirit of God, and even to your future resurrection and your complete glorification at God's throne after resurrection, all of salvation in Christ is designed by God for you to bring praise to His glory. Listen to what Shakespeare says about life. I'm going to get you depressed now on a dark and gloomy weekend. Listen to this. Macbeth opines, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. Tis a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. That's what life is like if it's divorced from a creator God 
who has created humans with the high and noble purpose of fellowshipping with Him, glorifying Him, and enjoying Him forever. Let's get more depressed. R.C. Sproul writes, and this is what our kids are being taught all the time. We were probably taught it, too, in our generation. If we emerge from the slime by accident and finally disintegrate into a void or abyss of nothingness, then we live our lives between two poles of absolute meaninglessness. We are zeros stripped naked of any dignity and worth. Here's the good news. If we believe the Scriptures to be true, things are just so radically different from the way Macbeth and unbelievers uh, assess them to be. God created a universe of incredible grandeur. He created a planet when it's left unscarred by treatment of careless men and women, inspires awe in us. Pat and I love to travel. Just think of Niagara Falls or think of the Canadian Rockies. Think of a sunset in the Florida Keys. It inspires all. He created men and women, the Scripture says, a little lower than the angels, and He crowned them with glory and honor, and He made them rulers over the works of His hands. That's the creation. And God is mindful of them, that Psalm 8 says, and He cares for them. That means that God created you and me for fellowship with Him and to enjoy Him and to worship Him and to ascribe glory to His glorious name. And then when man destroys that intended relationship by seeking his own glory, as in God knows when you eat that your eyes will be open and you will be like God, God fixes the ruptured relationship in the only way it can be fixed, by the giving of His sinless Son. And in doing that, He displays His glory like nothing else ever can. And you know what? Our rational response to that has to be the meaning that God gives our lives. When His glorious grace comes to us, it's to do everything we can even the most mundane things in life, in a way that shows him to the world that he is a glorious God. The test of every thought, of every word, of every deed is does this make known the riches of the glory of God's grace? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And I was thinking, you know, I wish I had another week to show how you apply all this stuff. And it came to me that the application is to get to know Jesus well and to follow Jesus. He's our example in carrying out our purpose. <clears throat> As his death approached, he could pray to his heavenly Father and say, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. His every thought, his every word, his every act, bringing glory to God. Now, we're going to come short of that, that standard, you know. We pray that God will give us grace to, 
to live like that. There are times that we're going to fall. There's a tremendous pull on each of us today, more so than ever, way more than when I was a young boy. Tremendous pull on each of us to live our lives for what we can see, touch, count, weigh, measure, and to disregard the unseen world. And that, believe me, has come into the church to our lives with a vengeance. The very secular world in which we now live, our own flesh and the devil, tempt us to think only about us and how we can best live our lives for our honor and our glory in this present time. And God calls us this morning to raise our focus to Him and His glory and to remember why He made us. Now, if you're here this morning and you have not seen the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus, He's not going to let you glorify yourself forever. When you breathe your last, if you don't know the glory of God through Christ Jesus, you're going to spend eternity apart from God and from His grace. We invite you to recognize your sin, to look upon the beauty and wisdom of God at the cross, to ask Christ to come into your life, to ask Him to be your Savior and Lord. And we can promise you that He will give you meaning and purpose in this life, and you will experience Him forever because Jesus prayed for you. He said, Father, I want those you have given me to be where I am and to see my glory. Father, may we 